to have everyone here. And uh, are you enjoying the summer? Yeah, yeah, good, good. A little rain today, but that's all right. Let me uh, ask you, you know, how's the last couple of weeks, this past month, a lot of stuff's been going on. Uh, raise your hand if you knew, had, had, had you heard that uh, Michael Jackson had died? <laughs> Jeff, you didn't? Okay, well. Yeah, that, 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 that's, the, the, the real king is there, isn't he? Okay. Well, there's no doubt that there's been a rash of recent high-profile deaths that has been made much of in the media. And, uh, in fact, I saw this article in the Suncoast News by columnist, uh, col- column, column, I can't say that today, Ms. Mark Shantz, uh, entitled this, High-Profile Deaths Boggled the Mind. And here's what he says. Viewers of cable television news networks might have thought only... His holy eminence, the Archbishop of Pop, Michael Jackson, passed away. But there were so many others who touched our hearts. He goes on, he talks about Ed McMahon, who died last week, came into our homes every night as Johnny Carson's sidekick on The Tonight Show. His demeanor as the neighbor who was always, who always offered a laugh imitating W.C. Fields during a bygone era when television was part of the family made him a national friend of millions. Of course, you know, this generation thinks he hawks uh, 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 publishers, publishers clearing house here. Oh, that guy, okay. A few days later, locally based TV pitchman Billy Mays, you know Billy, okay, know him, suddenly passed away, making one wonder with Mays and McMahon what crazy shopping network is planned in heaven. <laughs> now, I want you to take that last phrase, in heaven, and we're going to key on that in a moment. Farrah Fawcett, the all-American poster supermodel who many of us also grew up with and dreamed about, also died last week. He goes on to say, of course, if one watched the endless coverage of the death of Michael Jackson, especially on CNN and Fox, one would have thought we only lost one national treasure in the so-called king of pop. And, you know, this guy really hit the nail on the head in the sense that the reality is That week before July 4th, a lot of people died that week. In fact, a lot of people died this past week. In fact, a lot of people are going to die this week. Here's a couple personal deaths that occurred in the same time period of around July 4th and that week that are, are, are more personal. Church growth guru Ed Stetzer tweeted and blogged about the death of a 17-year-old teenager during the same time who was a dedicated Christ follower whose dad was a pastor and who preached the funeral and at the end of which he gave an invitation to those present to come forward and accept Christ. And he blogged about two funerals where one man had a golden casket and where one young man would be walking on streets of gold. one of my childhood friends I've reconnected with on Facebook, he, he kept trying to remind us of those dying in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan during that same time period. And of course, the most important death during that same time period that occurred for our household was our own dear neighbor. And so uh, we were at our church cookout a uh, couple weeks ago, and, and that was just right when in the midst of all this was going on. And, of course, you stand around, you shoot the breeze at those things. And it, it, I was in a group. We started talking about all these deaths. And there was a young lady that, that started to talk about how mind-boggling it was to have so many people who had died that week. And she began to recite the names, Michael Jackson, Ed McMahon, Farrah Fawcett. Then her voice trailed off, and she was trying to remember some more because there were a few more. And, and I just couldn't resist. And I said, yeah. And, and don't forget, and then I said the name of my neighbor. She looked at me and said, who? She's trying to rack her brain. Now, who, who is that? I said, yeah, don't you know? And then I said the name of my neighbor, and I immediately let her in that you, you don't know who that is. But she died this week. She died this week. And forever, as I will remember in the future, the death of Michael Jackson, I will always remember the death of my neighbor. Because on that week... I will never again have the opportunity to show her or tell her about the love of Jesus Christ and what He did for her on the cross. 
Now, I don't think any of us should begrudge Janet Jackson her time to remind a national audience on the BET Awards that to a nation, Michael Jackson was a celebrity icon, but to her family, he was a brother and he was a son. I don't think anybody would begrudge that opportunity. Of course, mourning the loss of a brother and a son wasn't the problem, was it? The problem was, and what began to grate on the nerves of most Americans, was the glorification of a person after he had died. As if just because they died a sudden or unwanted death, the person is now somehow a saint, or worse, a god that is to be worshipped. But before we're too hard on the media and Hollywood, let's stop and reflect on how easy it is after the loss of a loved one to overlook their faults and weaknesses and, yes, even their sins and begin to talk as if they were the most wonderful people on the planet. Don't we do that? I know I'm tempted to do that. You see, we all have a tendency to glorify those who die, especially loved ones. And just as it seems, and I'm sure Bill can attest to this, that no one in prison is ever guilty. It seems that every funeral, everyone goes where? To heaven. We heard some interesting comments on this televised memorial service for Michael Jackson. And again, I'm not making light of this in any shape or form, but it was a national story. It was a cultural story. We were subjected to it in a sense, even if you tried to avoid it. And so it's something we have heard. So here's what some of the things we heard. But what we heard was is repeated in countless funerals of much lesser known people. We heard a an ordained minister with very poor theology say this, God must have needed him more than we did. Now, beloved, I have to jump out of my seat on that one. God doesn't need any of us. It is we who need him. And the issue is not how much God needs us, but because he does not need us, why would he ever want us? Another dear friend pictured Michael up somewhere gently resting on a crescent moon. Now that grabbed me just because of its creativity, its childhood essence. It's probably pretty apropos for who Michael was. But she must have watched too many promos for DreamWorks Studios. I mean, that's the only place I could think of. Why would you come up with that? But what a pretty picture of a little boy on a crescent moon with a fishing pole up in the sky. Whenever someone dies, I mean, this is for lesser-known people. Whenever someone dies after a long and drawn-out death from cancer or some other slow, agonizing death, it is often said what? At least they're not what? Suffering anymore. And that's true if they went to heaven. But let me tell you, it's the understatement of the century if they went to hell. Because if they're in hell, they would much rather be lying in an ICU with tubes everywhere because that would be a vacation compared to the reality of hell. You see, even people who admit that the person who has died has never been a church-going person, was not kind of one of those Christian type of people, will in the same breath go and talk about how they are now in heaven playing cards or enjoying whatever hobby they had here on earth. But here's the question. Is that true? Is that reality? Look at this quote by C.S. Lewis. This is in your notes. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So the question is this morning, what really happens one minute after you die? What happens? This is the question that's asked at every funeral. Now, it may not be expressed, but at every funeral you're thinking, where are they? What has happened to them one minute after they died? And let me tell you, whether the question is asked, answers are almost always given. And you know what? That answer is never, ever so it seems that they went to hell. It is always, almost always what? They're in heaven. 
No one ever seems to go to hell at a funeral. Everyone seems to be in heaven. Poems are read that say it is so. Songs are sung that say it is so. Eulogies are said that say it is so. But does just reading a poem, does just singing a song, does just reading or saying a eulogy make it so? Are any of us, based on our own opinions, our own intellect, our own supposed goodness, are any of us in any position to make such a judgment? And I want to make clear at this point, I'm not here to, sh- to share with you what I'm here, I am not here to share what I'm going to share is not meant to judge any celebrity or any other person. That's not the point, nor is it my own personal opinion. What I am about to share with you, I'm like C.S. Lewis. If there's any doctrine after studying this this week, if there's any doctrine in Christianity I would eliminate, it is this one. But it's not mine to eliminate, nor is it yours. What I'm about to share with you is what Jesus Christ taught and believed. The one who claimed to be fully man and fully God. The only person in history who has died and claimed to rise again and has the historical evidence to prove it, he is the one we're going to listen to. Does everyone who die go to heaven because they want to? Does no one ever go to hell? Is it true? Is it reality? What does Jesus teach? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31 this morning. And I think this is a parable. There's some, I know there's a debate over is this an actual historical event or is this a parable. I really don't think it matters which way you go on that. There's some uh, Bible teachers who would say this is a real event that Jesus is recounting. The reason being, it's the only parable in all the Bible in which any of the participants has a personal name. But there's no rule listed in the Bible that says... A parable must never have a personal name in it. It's just, this is the only one. I would say to you, it is a parable, because when you look at the story, there's a reason to have a personal name for this. And I think the reason being, as we're going to see, is that God knows His own, and He calls His sheep by name. Lazarus gets a name. The one who had no name in this earth. God knew His name and called Him by name. The other man had a name on this earth. A name everybody would recognize. And he had a funeral that everybody attended. Everyone knew his name except for one person. God did not know it. He knew it, but I mean he didn't know it. So I think there's good justification for that. Besides, just because it's a parable doesn't mean what's taught is not true. In fact, you're talking about realities, and there's a lot of things we're going to see in this that I I think is a parable because I don't think people in hell can see people in heaven. And yet they do in this story. I don't think people in hell can talk to people in heaven. Yet they do in this story. Does that make it all untrue? No, it just means he's, he's using a parable, a story, to teach realities. In fact, it makes it all the more true because what it's telling you is the truth behind this is so great that it cannot be comprehended fully. So enough on that. It's simply, I will say this, that in being a, par- a parable... It warns us not to take every point and press it to its, you know, this isn't everything and technically in detail everything there is to know about one minute after you die. We need to look at the main principles and the main ideas. The text will tell us that. I won't. The text will. And then we'll go from there. So this morning I want to focus on what happens to people one minute after they die and they go to hell. Let's look at the the parable. It begins in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up the eye his eyes, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have 
mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his tongue in water, or tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, Therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. God help us to hear what Jesus is saying to us. I want to show you five facts. Five facts from this passage of what happens to someone one minute after they die and they go to hell. And the first fact is this. You are forever separated. You are forever separated. Separated. We see this in verses 22 and 23. The first thing we need to ha- understand that happens one minute, not even one minute, the second, the millisecond, the nanosecond, you die, I die, we are separated. Death is separation. In verse 22, both men die. The poor man's body is not said to be buried. I find that interesting because most likely it was not buried. Either it was eaten by the dogs which previously had licked his wounds or it was thrown in the city trash heap which burned continually outside most cities at that time. Jerusalem's garbage dump was called Gehenna because of the valley in which it was found. It burned with a continual fire and worms were constantly eating at the rotting trash and decaying bodies of those who were either too poor to be buried or too dishonored to get a burial. If Jesus Christ had not been, if his body had not been taken and buried, it would have been taken from the cross and thrown on that trash heap because he had died an ignoble death. The rich man's body, though, is said very specifically to have been buried. Why? Because he was obviously able to afford it and in this life considered worthy of such a burial. Now, both men, in a sense, were buried as they lived. Think on this. Think on this. You will die as you lived. The poor man's burial was non-existent and overlooked, too significant to be made much of because that's how he lived. The rich man most likely had a grand burial with brand new sepulcher carved out of the finest stone and professional mourners that all gathered and wailed his death. Much was made of him due to his wealth and his name and his significance. Had he died this past month, he would have had a golden casket. He would have had A-list celebrities. He would have had a televised funeral. In this respect, John Calvin says in his, in his commentary on this, the rich man was buried magnificently according to his wealth. He still retained some remnant of his former pride. In this respect, we see godly men striving, as it were, against nature by effecting a pompous and splendid funeral for the sake of preserving their superiority after death. But their souls in hell attest the folly and mockery of this ambition. This is how he was buried. But the fact is, he's no longer with his body in that golden casket. His soul is now where? In hell. A place of torment. In verse 23, we move on. Both men are still very much alive. The point is this. Death is separation of the soul from the body. And even though their bodies are still on earth or, in, 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 or under the earth, they're already beginning the proper process of decomposing. 
It's not how you are buried or even how you died. It's how you lived and what happens one minute after you die that is the important thing. The first thing that happens one minute after we die is separation of the soul from the body. The body is buried, but the immaterial part goes to one of two places, either to heaven or to hell. Abraham's bosom is just another name for heaven. It's, in, it's being in the presence of God. Hades is the, is, is, is the same place as hell. It's a temporary place of punishment awaiting the final judgment that leads to further punishment. And because this is a parable, we're limited in our understanding. Jesus pictures the two as though they still have bodies. See, here's the hard part. If you're paying attention to the text, you're saying, wait a minute, you said they're separated from their bodies. But he sees, and he speaks, and he asks for a finger, and he's concerned about his tongue. It sounds like they have their bodies. Well, here's the point. Their personality is still there. And he's using this figurative language to say that though you're separated from your body, you, yourself, and all that you are as a person is still very much alive. And experiencing what these things are after death. They were no longer on earth in their earthly bodies. Those had been, those had been buried in the case of the rich man in a tomb. In the case of the poor man, more likely eaten by the dogs. But the point is this. One minute after you die, you'll be separated from your body. And from your body, it means you are separated from everything in this life that makes it life. Now, there's three kinds of death in the Bible. Let's look at the depth of the separation. First of all, death is separation in terms of physical death. And that's what we've been talking about, physical death. The separation of the soul or the spirit, the immaterial part from the body. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For all in Adam die. Because here's the deal. The death rate has been consistent since the time of Adam and Eve. You know what it is? One for one. It is one for one. Everyone who is born will die. Every one of us, if the Lord delays His coming, everyone in this room, including myself, will experience physical death where our immaterial part is separated from our bodies. Our bodies will be there. They will be lifeless. They will be cold. They will become rigid and they will decay back to dust. You can put it in a gold casket and it still becomes dust. Number two is spiritual death. Spiritual death is the separation of the entire person from God and His saving grace in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says we are born dead in our sins. So that's what I tell Amber. Amber, you're dying. You were born dying. Spiritual death is the separation of the entire person from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So we're born dead. Spiritual, but every time, it's, do you see that every time it's a separation, not a ceasing of existing? You say, well, I'm alive here. You're alive, but you're a walking dead person if you do not know Jesus Christ. Number three, if that condition is not changed, if your spiritual death is not reversed or overcome, number three, you will experience eternal death. Eternal death is the separation of all believers from God and all His goodness for all eternity in a resurrected body that can suffer pain, burn with fire, yet never be consumed. Point is this, there's worse things than dying physically. It's eternal death where you're reunited with a body, but that body is designed by God to be able to be burned forever and never be consumed. See, we think all the time about us as believers, a glorified body. I think we need to spend a little more time thinking about resurrected unto condemnation. Listen, we don't get in on the good stuff, and they get in on a sub-good stuff that is like fishing or playing cards or floating on clouds. I'm telling you, the poems that are read at funerals are bizarre in their lack of substance, reality, and truth. I'm not, I, listen, I'm not putting people down. People look for comfort. The problem is we're not there building relationships in order to earn the right to speak the truth. 
And so we look at physical death. I, 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 I go on. Listen, listen. Separation, separation, separation. I want you to sh- shut your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about someone you have dearly loved who has died. Saved or unsaved? Because here's the reality. Shut your eyes and for a moment reflect. Though you will be reunited with believers, you are still separated. And death is that ultimate separation. I had a dear friend who 11 years ago yesterday, dad died. So what did she put on her Facebook? 11 years ago today. What is she thinking? 11 years of separation. 11 years of separation. Visited my neighbor yesterday and all on his face. I wake up alone. Separation. It's profound. It's permanent. It's real. And it's the first step. Number two. One minute after we die and go to hell, you experience eternal suffering. You experience eternal suffering. It is not just a separation, a separation into a fanciful crescent moon existence, fairy tale, naked little baby cherubs floating around. A place of no suffering is a place of eternal suffering. This, more than anything else, is what Jesus emphasizes in this parable. Did you notice that in the New King James, four times the word is used, torment, 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 torment. In reality, beneath that, there are two Greek words. Most other translations you have will translate two of those words as torment and two of those words as anguish. If what I'm about to teach you does not shake you, then there is something wrong. Because it shook me. And here it is. Eternal suffering involves, according to this passage, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, two aspects. The first is torment. The first word is used in verses 23 and 28. It is called a place of torment. I am tormented in this flame, in this place of torment, in verses 23 and 28. The word literally means torture. I sat and I tried to make it mean something else. This concerns me. How am I in America in the 21st century in a post Guantanamo Bay culture say that God tortures people? But he does. This word can refer to severe pain caused by unrelenting suffering of sickness, whether physical or emotional or mental torments. It's used of people who were afflicted with various disease, and it says they were tormented. Have you ever had something and you've said, have you ever been in a disease or a pain and you've said, this is, what do you say? Torture. Have you ever had chronic pain? Have you ever had a disease, a rash, or even something as simple as a cut finger that you got lemon juice into? And what did you say? That's torture. That's painful. That is excruciating. Now imagine your whole body flayed open and dipped in lemon juice for the rest of your eternity. Now, that's the physical side, but most often this word refers to what I have defined in your notes. Unrelenting suffering. Unrelenting suffering due to being judged for one's sins and paying back what is owed to a holy God. This word is found in Matthew 8. 28 through 29, on the lips of two demon-possessed men who demons are speaking to Jesus and saying, Have you come, O Son of Man, to torment torment us before the time? And it refers to what? Eternal torture that's deserving, that is deserving of, and given to demons. But in Matthew 18, 28 through 35, when Jesus tells a parable about unforgiving people, he ends the parable in this way. And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers. The same word. 
torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then he says this in verse 35, And my heavenly Father, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You will have spiritual torture. The point is not torture in our sense of the word. God is not getting his jollies up there from this. No, it's not the idea. It's that idea that I just read. It's the fact that he's a holy God and we just sang it. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. And those who do not pay him his worth will do so in eternity. They will pay back what he is due. Wow, that's just heavy stuff. I can't get my head around that. In fact, my head wants to rebel against that. My heart wants to say it's so. And here's what I concluded. Once you really understand what hell the torments of, you want to deny it. But once you really understand who God is, you say it must be this way. It must be this way. Because you know what? That's how great He is. And that's how much we owe Him. That's how much He requires of us. And that's how much He enables you and I to give back to Him if we will only surrender to His Son. This isn't impossible. The way has been made. So that's the torment. But the torment leads to anguish, and that's the second word that's used in verses 24 and 25. And this is what comes off the lips of the rich man. He says, I am in anguish. And Abraham says back to him, that's why you are in agony. And the word means this, unrelenting misery. Unrelenting misery due to being forever separated from God and suffering the consequences of all that that means. This word for agony occurs four times in Luke-Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. He uses the word four times, and again, the first two times give a physical illustration of agony. The second two times are found on the lips of the rich man. What does agony and anguish mean? Well, two times when Luke uses it, he uses it for deep emotional agony of being separated from those you love. Now, follow with me on this, because this is power. This This is the word picture that will grab your heart. And here it is. In Luke 2.48, it says this. He uses this word. It refers to Jesus' parents when they think they've lost their only firstborn son, they've lost him in Jerusalem, and they think they'll never see him again. The word is anguish. And here's what it says. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, 13 years old, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. It doesn't give the word. Moms, dads, have you ever thought you lost your kid? I left Amber at Westlake Hardware one day. I said, I, I said, let's go get a... I had to get a filter, a job I hate to do. I had to do it. Let's go get a... Amber, come on, come get the filter. And she's playing... There was a little play area there, so she'd always want to play on that. And I'm looking at filters, keeping an eye on her. And then I got engrossed in the filter. I found the filter. I'm, I'm going to get this job I hate doing. Simple job, but I hate doing it. I'm going to get it done. Ran to the checkout, checked out, ran home, blew into the door... Went right downstairs, got that filter in, came back up. That job was accomplished. And Gwen says, where's Amber? And I said, oh, my God, she's at the hardware store. And I flew out. I said, call the hardware store over my shoulder. I jumped in that car. I blew through red lights on Antioch and Inglewood. And I bet God. So all I could imagine was the milk carton with my daughter's face on it for the rest of her life. I said, oh God, please don't let it I'm just trying to get you to see. Now, we laugh about that. You know, and for the rest of the night, Amber said, why did you forget me, Dad? You know, she still brings it up. You know. It's funny now. But you know what I had in my heart? I had anguish. I had agony thinking, I may never see her again. 
That's what this word means. That's what happens in hell. That's what we feel. That's what my neighbor is feeling. The anguish that never again will his life partner be here. But you know what's worse? Is if you're in hell realizing you're not only never going to see your spouse again, you're never going to see this world again, you're never going to see anyone you love again, and that's anguish. And it is eternal and it is unending. The other time it's used of the Ephesian church elders who Paul has gathered in Acts 20 and he has told them that you will not see my face again and it says they are in much sorrow. It doesn't grab the idea. The idea is we're never going to see Paul again on this world. And they're in anguish. Now, The other two uses are right there of this man in hell and he is saying, I am in agony. You know what he's saying? Separation is the suffering. Are you with me? That separation is the suffering anguish. And you take your suffering of who you are separated from death, but you place that person potentially in hell and you multiply that anguish by a thousand and they're on a, their face is on an eternal milk carton and they will never be found. They will be forever lost. What kind of agony does he experience in this chapter? He experiences physical agony. Cool my tongue. He's separated from even one drop. He says, all I need is one drop. And he can't even have one drop. He has spiritual agony. There is, is Lazarus with fellowship with Abraham, with fellowship with God, and he has no fellowship. Notice, he's not hanging out. He's not drinking with his buddies. He's not partying with those people down in hell. How I remember a young man when I first got saved, and he said, Chris, if my buddy Joe is going to go to hell, then I want to be there with him. But you're not going to be with him. You're going to be separated. Emotional agony. Do you see the emotional agony? He has a concern that his family will not come where he comes. And guess what? He can do nothing about it and nothing will be done about it. He has cries for help that not not one of his requests are answered in hell. That's agony. And then there's mental agony. Do you see him reasoning? He's thinking. He's reasoning. He's regretting. But do you realize that he's never once repenting? Listen, hell is not filled with people who are repenting. Hell is filled with people who are still rebelling. Never once. He knows my brothers need to repent, but is he repenting? No. It's a false concern. What do people know in hell? You know, you look at this passage, this is a sermon in itself. What do people know in hell? Number one, they know that the suffering is undoubtedly real. Does he think hell is make-believe? Does he? No, see, this is a man who probably, who never thought he would be there. He never thought he would be there. He knows hell is now a very real place. There will be no jokes about hell in hell. Walter Hooper, who was C.S. Lewis's personal secretary, laughed when he read the following inscription on a grave. Here lies an atheist all dressed up with no place to go. Lewis, however, did not completely share in his laughter. Here is how Lewis soberly responded. I'm sure he wishes now that that were true. You see, hell is a sobering reality for those who don't believe. Thomas Hobbes said this, Hell is truth seen too late. It's real. It's undoubtedly real. Number two, they know that suffering is unbelievably painful. They know that suffering is unbelievably painful. They know it's horrible. They know it's unthinkable. They know it's unbearable. It is beyond what you and I can comprehend. Only God could reveal us this truth. And you know what? He has been gracious to tell us ahead of time. He has been gracious to tell us ahead of time. Number three, they know that the suffering is undeniably deserving. Undeniably deserving. I think of all these guys, of all of this guy's cries for help, remember in Bible study, the most significant things are what is not said. You know what he never says? 
here. You know what he never says? Father Abraham, God has been unjust. In fact, do you notice he never asks to get out of there? You know why? Because he knows he deserves to be there. He knows how to get out of there. My brothers must repent, but he knows that he didn't. And you know what I think is amazing in hell? There's more reality in hell than sometimes among Christians. That's pretty sobering. Number four, they know that the suffering was unquestionably avoidable. They know that they could have avoided it, but they didn't. They know someone needs to warn those who are still alive. I think that's amazing. He knew it was avoidable. He knew what to do to avoid it, and he knew someone needed to warn his brothers. Do you understand and realize how convicting that is? That there is more evangelistic zeal in hell than is sometimes in this room? Did you, read, did, you, did you grab that? Are you convicted? I am. There is more evangelistic zeal in reality in hell among unbelievers than probably is in this room. My prayer is that that will change. That that will change. Number five, they know that the suffering is unreservedly eternal. He knows that it is unreservedly eternal. They know, he knows that there is no way out. He knows that once he asks for mercy, there will be no mercy shown. He knows when he wants comfort, there will be no comfort shown. It is eternal. This is being questioned today by even Bible-believing teachers of the Bible who are questioning whether God's judgment is eternal. And yet, eternal means eternal. How do I know? Other passages picture hell as a place of burning fire, unquenchable fire, unquenchable wrath. Fire pictures wrath. Feasting worms. That pictures unending corruption. Unending rottenness. That's what hell is. Gnashing teeth. Unbearable pain where you just grit your teeth and go, that's what hell is. Deepest darkness. Unrelenting separation. I'm telling you, I'm shaken. Because everything in me wants to lighten that up. Everything in me says, the world doesn't accept that. But everything in me says, the Bible's true. God is gracious. He's warned us. Forever suffering. And if that's not bad enough, number three, one minute after you die and go to hell, your destiny is forever Settled, forever separated, forever suffering, forever settled. Did you see verse 26? And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you, from heaven to hell, cannot. Those who want to go from hell to heaven cannot. You say, why would anybody want to go from heaven to hell? Because the second we get to heaven, we're going to realize the opportunities we missed. And we're going to want to somehow go down there and relieve suffering, offer hope. And it will be too late. It will be too late. In verse 23, it's far away. In verse 26, the one who is suffering is told there's a great gulf. There is no second chance after you die. There is no reincarnation coming back into another life. There is no purgatory where you get a spanking and then you get to go to heaven, where you get burned a little bit and cleansed and then you enter heaven. The gospel sets before people their true destiny in Christ, warns them in all seriousness of the consequences of missing this destiny. The status is forever settled. And that brings us to number four. You forever reap exactly what you have sown. You forever reap exactly what you have sown. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. In other words, here's the point of that. You didn't want God... Listen, 
You didn't want God to be a part of your thinking. You had no time to love Him. You no had time to love those who I even laid at your doorstep. You had no time for me. You had time for all the good things of this life. Guess what? In eternity, I will grant you your desire. There will be no room for me. There will be no time for love. There will be no eternal goodness. But look, Lazarus got evil things, but now he's comforted. Because you know why? In spite of the suffering that Lazarus had, he put his faith in a God he couldn't see who didn't give him good things, but he loved him anyway. Who didn't heal his body, but he loved him anyway. He gave him in this life what God was due and did not make demands. And guess what he got in heaven? He got the one that he wanted in this life. You see, the rich man got what he wanted in this life, and therefore God gave it to him in eternity. Lazarus got what he wanted in this, in this life, and what he wanted more than, than a nice house, and the American dream was God, and so guess what he got in eternity? God. And a better house. And a better mansion. And a better living. Lewis says it better than I can. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. You see, the rich Lazarus said in the midst of his suffering, God, your will be done. I put my faith and trust in you regardless of how my, miserable my life may be. And God said, Your will be done. You get me. The rich man said, My will be done. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to order my priorities my way. I'm going to put me first in my finances, in my calendar, in my service, in my relationships. It's all about me. And God said, your will be done for all of eternity. They reap what they sow. Finally, your heart will remain forever the same. One minute after you die and go to hell, you will, your heart will remain forever the same. I think this is what we need to understand. Listen, when people die, they don't suddenly become Mother Teresa. When people die, they don't suddenly become a saint. You will be a saint in eternity if God has made you a saint before you die. Here's the thing about the, the rich man. Do you understand that his heart has not changed? He is not crying out to God. He didn't do it before. He didn't do it after. Do you notice how he views Lazarus? He viewed him as insignificant. Guess what he sees him as now? His houseboy. Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to tell my... Send him. Send him. Send him. He isn't saying, oh, Lazarus, forgive me. My heart's now changed. I realize I didn't show you love and compassion. His heart has not changed. And you know what about you know what about the poor about Lazarus? Guess what his heart was? He was poor and needy and dependent on God in this life. And guess what he is in heaven? Poor and needy and dependent on God. His heart has remained the same. You see, our heart as Christians don't change once we die. The change becomes before you die when you say, Jesus, change my heart. It's evil. It's selfish. It's sinful. It's focused on self. It needs to be focused on you. I can't do that. Change me. He changes your heart today. And guess what? In eternity, you'll have that same glorified, changed heart. Well, I end with this. Listen, when people die, they don't become fundamentally different than when they were alive. You are right now what you will be in eternity in the sense that you are who you are and the choices you make will determine your destiny. And please, I beg of you, don't put your confidence in a prayer prayed in the past. Let me ask you, is today, this past week, did you show by your life that your faith is real, that it works, and that you put God first in your life? That is where your confidence lies, not in something you do in the past that makes no change of heart. Listen, you can pray, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can do all the things right, and yet if your heart has not changed, your heart will remain the same in in hell. And hell is populated with religious people. 
hell is populated with people that carry this book. Well, I'm getting into next week's sermon. What kind of people go to hell? Let me end with this. We can talk all about this. This isn't about Michael Jackson. This isn't about Farrah Fawcett. This isn't about my neighbor or my mother who has died. This is about you and I. What will happen to you one minute after you die? Make sure today that you're 100% sure if you died right now, you'd go to heaven and not to hell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Give your heart to Jesus today. But number two, make a list if you're born again. Make a list of the people you come into close contact with on a daily basis and begin praying for God to open doors for you to share the gospel with them and invite them to this church. Invite them to your iLife group. Begin to pray as though you believe One minute after these people die, they will be eternally separated. They will be forever suffering. Their destiny will be forever settled. And they will reap what they have sown, and their heart will remain the same. God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us of our self-righteous comfort in the things of this great nation. Forgive us, Lord, for being more concerned about our paychecks than the souls of people. Forgive us, Lord, for being more concerned about our retirement than eternity of people around us. God, forgive us for being more concerned about self than you as our sovereign Savior. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has the slightest doubt about where they would go, that they would get with one of us, I'd love to talk to them. But they can just really talk to you and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not as an insurance policy, but as my Savior and Lord, whom I will now follow in the power of the Spirit. And then, Lord, I pray that we will live as if we really believe this. God help us. In Jesus' name, amen.